Welcome to another edition of Who Takes Roadshow, where tonight I'll be speaking with Rob Lloyd. Good afternoon, good evening, and uh, good night. If you follow Rob Lloyd on Twitter, you'll know his profile runs actor, comedian, Hufflepuff, Time Lord, Problem Solver. One thing it doesn't mention is podcaster, and with the recent launch of the excellent Nerd Out podcast, I'm thinking the profile needs an update. Rob, hello. Hello. How are you doing, Rob? I'm not too bad at all. How's Nerd Out going? Nerd Out is going well. You know, it's 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 a vicious sea the uh, the podcast ocean that exists on the internet. So to find uh, to find your place in that in that storm, or find your little you know calm island for you to sort of like sprout your nerdy thoughts is a is is a challenge right at the first so we've got to try and make our way within that uh and labyrinth of so many other podcasts out there i'm sure there's so many other nerds going you know what i should do i should get together with another nerdy friend and just talk about everything that we love which bores the hell out of all our you know other friends or family and stuff like that so i'm sure <laughs> i'm sure we'll find our way uh, amongst the sea of other nerds out there trying to compete glory so it's a lot of fun at the moment we're just hoping uh the the rest of uh, the online community find us uh, soon enough oh for sure and it's a lot of fun to listen to as as a listener i quite enjoy the variety from show to show you're always talking about different tv shows or different movies um out there what made you want to do it well i've <laughs> it's it's the i've i've guested on so many podcasts over the last couple of years um especially with you know focusing on my my doctor who obsession which has like been the main focus of my professional career over the last five years um so it's always been in the back of my head you know i should do a podcast i should do a podcast a podcast would be a good thing and i was so like co-hosting a podcast for a couple of years called uh Preacher's podcast before uh, my co-host Benjamin Mayer McKay sort of like gave up the Doctor Who element of the show and went on to do more legitimate stuff like focus on uh, performing arts uh, as the main focus of the show. So I've kind of like lost that avenue for me just to sprout my nerdy crap wherever I want to. And uh, I've done some stuff with Sandro before because he's a young up-and-coming broadcaster. And uh, so when he came across, the uh, he, he brought up the idea the main thing was that he'd do all the the editing and the the putting it on all the specific sites and stuff. Um, so I said, all I have to do is talk and then share a couple of links. I can do that. You've got it made in the shade there. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So he does all the hard work, and I sort of like reap the benefits. And I put reap the benefits in inverted commas, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> all right. If anyone wants to find Nerd Out, where can they find it, Rob? We are on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, we've got our own um, uh, Facebook page. So just type in uh, Nerd Out with Rob Lloyd and Sandra Felcher and uh, you'll be able to find us or just go to uh, my Facebook page or website and there are links there. So robloyd.com.au, everything is uh, everything for Nerd Out and everything else I do is on my website. Lovely stuff. Now, on to the item you've brought for us today for the Roadshow. It looks like, well, it looks like a book. Yes, it is. Look, uh, you know, you you sent me the challenge of uh, finding something that you know has more than just TV show mentality, has a deep personal personal connection. So I've gone through a couple of options, but the one I stuck with um, was Doctor Who and the Planet of the Daleks target novelization by Terence Dix. Now, everyone, you know, everyone who's a Doctor Who fan at heart should have some version of a uh, target novelization, whether it's a you know whether it's 
one of the more updated ones with forwards by famous fans or some of the classic ones that you can find in secondhand bookshops or even the hard-to-find hardback covers. Um, but this one in particular holds a special place in my heart, and that's why I thought I'd bring that along uh, to, to, the, to the show today. Well, please, the, the floor is yours. Why, why did you choose this particular one? When I, when I was a kid, I, I didn't get into Doctor Who until quite late. When I was a kid, I was, I was much more into Star Wars and, and Sherlock Holmes and, and other type nerdy obsessions. I always wanted to get into Doctor Who. I was always interested in, in the concept of it. And so, I'd, you know, the iconic images of the Daleks. And, of course, I was aware quite early on there was more than just one actor who played the, the Doctor, but I wasn't sure why. Mm. I, I needed to. I knew it was a massive, you know, decade long, you know, decades long series. So I needed someone to sit me down and tell me everything. I couldn't just throw myself in and just hope for the best. Um, so kind of, sort of like, kind of like kept me at a distance until I got to uni in 1996, where a friend of mine who I met at uni was a huge Doctor Who fan and told me the entire history of Doctor Who in in a, in a five hour conversation, which was brilliant. Oh wow! But when I was yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's not for the faint of heart getting into Doctor Who. <laughs> so when I was a kid growing up, we had a really good book collection. My parents were quite, you know, uh, avid readers and, you know, because they were both primary school teachers and wanted me and my brother to read as well. And we had in our shelves, we had three Doctor Who target novelizations. And I had no idea. Still to this day, I've got some suspicions where, but still to this day, I have no idea how they got there in, um, in our bookshop. I even asked mum and dad and I said, we had three target novelizations, which I still have now, but do you know where you got them from? And mum and dad don't even know. So there's this <laughs> three mysterious who books have just landed in my shelf for some, you know, reason. I could dig a little deeper and try and find out, but I'd like the mystique of the doctor drop these off for me to find, you know, because, you know, you know, time's a fickle thing and it'll come in whenever you know, it needs to. Um, so I had um, Doctor Who and the, uh, and the Zabi, I had uh, Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters and Doctor Who and the Planet of the Daleks. And so when I started getting into Doctor Who, I remembered I had those books. I brought them into my collection. I read the Cave Monsters because at that point um, I hadn't seen Silurians, which was good. But there was something about Planet of the Daleks that really stood out for me. I know it's quite, you know, within the the Who history, it's got a, a, a you know, quite a dubious past because it's, connected to the Terry Nation script, who just wrote, write the same story over and over again. <laughs> One of the episodes is in black and white. So there's all the, it wasn't released on, on video till right near the end of the VHS run. So, but reading this story, I got, I, I got really into it. I love the fact that it connected back to the Thals. Um, and I always wanted to see this episode, but I never could. So in my early days of fandom, this book became one of those, episodes I couldn't find. I got the Silurians quite, you know, soon into my fandom. So the cave monsters I'd read and not, but this one was the elusive one I couldn't find. I'd read the book over and over. I got the, the cassette version of it read by John Pertwee. Um, it was in, insane me trying to find this, uh, this story. And so when it was eventually released on, uh, on video, one episode in black and white, um, you know, it's sort of like that fruition finally came to, to an end but then the book stayed with me because it's a beautiful cover it's got that amazing mm. classic art design with the dalek and and you know uh mr pertwee and he's wonderful he only wore it in one story but that beautiful uh rich you know uh maroon um 
uh, velvet jacket is great, and you've got um, the other file on the side. So great cover, very stylized of sort of like that seventies, eighties style. Um, I was going to say he'd make Jimi Hendrix proud with that jacket. Exactly, the frilly shirt as well. So like, you know, Hendrix, Hendrix was the master, and I think Pertwee was a very close second of wearing velvet. Um, and Hendrix wore the, the the Tom Baker wide brim hat as well. So Hendrix was on top of all Doctor Who fashion back in the day. Absolutely. I was just going to jump in and say, so at this stage in your early university career, you're getting into Doctor Who, you're reading this book, and it's before you've seen the actual episodes. So yeah. I think you're getting to that that you did eventually get a hold of the VHS of this. How different or not different was it for you watching it, and were you more excited or disappointed when you actually saw the TV version? It's it's always the case, you know, and, and I understand it where so many fans go who were, you know, because at that time there was no Doctor Who merchandise, the only merchandise you know, fans had at that time were the target novelizations and what Terence Dix did so well um, and a lot of the other writers who went on to do the target novelizations like Malcolm Hulk and even Ian Marta, they, you know, expanded the characters, expanded the stories. They weren't just run-of-the-mill, you know, recreate, you know, rewrites. Filled in some of the plot holes and expanded some of the characters. And so, yeah, it's a very... Yeah, when you actually see the story for real after reading the book first, you can't help but be a little bit disappointed by, you know, what the result is. So some of the effects, some of the performances, um, even though I'm quite a fan of how they realise the jungle setting, even though it's all studio, I'm quite a fan of that that type of stuff. And the lo- only location shoots in the in sort of like the uh, in the quarries with all the the smoky, uh, misty. Um, uh, you know, pits where they they drop the the Dalek into are quite well realized, but yeah, it's sort of like that. You lose a lot when you see the original version. Like a lot of fans say they prefer the the novelizations, and I'm I, I'm of that ilk as well. If you've read the story before you've seen it, you're going to be always a little bit disappointed. Yeah, I I agree. I often talk about this because I grew up watching Doctor Who in the '80s, so it was tons of Tom Baker repeats. Uh, mixed in with some uh, some Davison, which was new at the time, and uh, Baker, which was new at the time, and then McCoy. One thing I wasn't seeing a lot of was Pertwee. There were some Pertwee repeats, but I didn't really see them. Uh, Troughton, well, there wasn't really much to go around, and Hartnell especially I hadn't seen at all. So in, in the late 80s, when Target was putting out a lot of Hartnell books, I was reading the Target novels of, of stories I'd obviously never seen and thinking, these are fantastic. And yeah. then when I finally saw them... <laughs> On, on video, and then some of them I had to wait till DVD to catch. I thought, ooh, uh, that really wasn't as good as the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, um, like a classic one as well is Warriors of the Deep. Like the 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 novelization is such an intense, beautiful, almost you know, almost Shakespearean style story. But then you know, the limits of budget and time really show in the final product. Um, Cave Monsters is a great one because they really expand on the. Uh, the secondary characters and find a little bit about their past and beautiful, you know, really sad. And even the, the Silurians as well are more than just, you know, Silurian one, Silurian two, they have, you know, characters and backstories as well. So it's um, able to take that time to develop it more as opposed to just the, the strict routine of television. So, yeah, so it's, it's always a slightly disappointing thing when you've read this story and then you see it finally in a, you know, in all its television glory. <laughs> Now, two of these three books were, were Pertwee books. Did that give you sort of an early um, love of the Pertwee Doctor or an interest in the Pertwee Doctor at least, or did you just want to go all over the place and sample from, from all the Doctors? 
Yeah, well, I got into Doctor Who in in '96, and that was, of course, not only the year the telly movie came out, but that was when John Pertwee passed away. So, automatically, I had this fascination about this 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 actor who played the Doctor. In the you know, he passed away the same year. I really finally get into it. So I watched all the news articles about him, and it was really fascinating. They showed his interviews on Parkinson or Wogan, and it was you know just how he'd slip from character voice to character voice. Um, fascinated me, you know, back in back in the day. You know, the more I've, seen, it's obviously he, you know, he falls back on the same three or four voices, which now we find endearing. Um, you go through that whole phase of Perth where you go, oh my gosh, he's amazing. Then you go, oh, he's doing the same thing over and over again, and then you come back to going, oh gosh, we love the Pert. Um, <laughs> so it's it's a whole, you know, the, it's the stages of acceptance when it comes to uh, the the beautiful John Pertwee. So I was really fascinated, and so I went out and. Uh, tried to absorb as much about Pertwee as I could, and I'd watched my first full story of his was um, Spearhead from Space, his first story, and from that story on, I was just you know I was you know love at first sight. Pertwee became my my favorite Doctor from that moment on, and so I was Pertwee was always at the top of my list. To to I wanted to see as many as I could, but I always tried to find the missing Pertwee stories or the hard to get Pertwee stories before. Uh, any of the other doctors. It was just something about him and his arc as the doctor over five years, his, you know, his exile to earth really fascinated me. And um, yeah. And the unit family was, was something that was really appealing to me as well. And so I wanted to find those stories because I got into it to the point where a lot had been released, but they were hard to, you know, they're hard to find in, you know, ABC shops, which are now extinct as well. Yes. Getting old. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, that fascinated kept going and having those novelizations that were in my house mysteriously as a child, just waiting for me to find them. Uh, they were very patient. They played the long game um, to go back to whenever I couldn't find a, a story. It sounds like it was meant to be in, in that case. Um, my relationship with Pertwee is very on and off at times. I think, oh, he's so arrogant. He's so awful in this story. And other times I think, oh, this is great. I, I love it when he's an ass to people. And, and I sort of <laughs> tic-tac between the two. Something I liked when I was catching up with his stories is, and you've partially mentioned this, that um, one of the, uh, the episodes of Planet of the Daleks was originally black and white before they uh, mm. used that special technique to, to sort of recolorize it for the DVD release. The first time I saw The Demons... It was all in black and white, and I think forever that's coloured that as just the ultimate story for me because it was so scary in black and white. I don't know if you saw it first in, in black and white or not, but by God, it was great in black and white. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, like, I saw uh, Ambassadors of Death. The first time I saw Ambassadors of Death straight was uh, a copy of it from UK TV when they had the rights to it on, um, on, you know, on uh, pay TV, and that was all black and white as well, and so... Um, some of the dodgier effects were covered up quite well, and it go, yeah, it's it's a credit to the dodgy nature, open inverted commas, of some of the transitions. Because once you watch the DVD versions of these, they really show up the datedness of the effects. But in that more VHS lower quality version of them, you, you know, they blur and they kind of work well. Like watching um, uh, the Mind Robber. And on VHS, it's beautiful. And those eerie scenes in episode one where they're in this vast emptiness looks great. But once you get the <laughs> the DVD, DVD updated, you know, upgraded version, you can see the line where the cyclorama is and you can mm-hmm. see that it's just a go. So that kind of takes away from the, you know, the smoke and mirrors of, of, uh, of the industry, which we love to actually, you know, 
see oh you can see the lines or you can see the joins yeah and also the size of screen we watch on these days as well doesn't help does it no no <laughs> there's there's nothing left to hide yeah high definition just definitely has a lot to answer for <laughs> i agree i totally agree um, yeah so the plan of the daleks sort of like stuck around with me and when i started incorporating my uh, my obsessions and my nerdiness into my professional performing, I sort of like brought along with me. And especially with Planet of the Daleks is very special to me because I was, uh, when I was in a, a, a comedy trio called The Hounds, we um, did quite a lot of uh, work back in the noughties. Uh, we did a show called Every Film Ever Made, which we toured all around Australia. And our next show was a show called The Last Bucket of Water about how the three of us were in this, you know, mythical, mythical future apocalyptic setting where there's only one bucket of water left in the world and the three of us were left to guard it. And of course, um, you know, we're three complete idiots and there was no way that we will uh, survive or let that water exist. So in one particular scene, I'm left to guard the bucket because I'm the only responsible one. I put that in inverted commas and um, I pull out a, a copy of a target novelization to read and it's a uh, planet of the Daleks. So that toured with me whenever we, we toured the show, so I had that. So it's a bit battered now from all the, the many tours that we did all around uh, Australia with that show, but it sort of like stuck with me because it's a beautiful cover. It was, you know, had Daleks in the title, and um, I sat to read it while I was guarding the water, and then from the water emerged the Doctor Who theme to uh, to in, entice me into it. And we find out at the end of the show the water was possessed by an evil spirit, and so we had to, you know, flush it down the toilet and get rid of all the water. Spoilers, Rob. Spoilers. <laughs> Spoilers. Oh. Um, and the water was my father and like any and, and Spock was involved somehow in every franchise. And then we dropped the water into Mordor. It was, it was huge. Wow. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. I missed this show. <laughs> um, I may be exaggerating a bit, but anyway. Um, so yeah. Uh, so the book has, is, is not in pristine condition, which a lot of uh, collectors would be quite um, annoyed about, but I can see that the, the, uh, I can see the watermarks. I can see the the, you know, the the wear and tear on the front cover, but it's um it, it reminds me of you know when I first first saw this book when I was way 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 in my youth, like about six years old back in um back in Dubbo, country New South Wales, when I was a kid. And I re- remember reading it for the first time in the nineties, and I remember using it professionally um you know in the noughties. So it's it this little book and I have seen a lot together. So it's a uh, like connects with connects me with who all through my life, so I thought that's why I'd bring it to the show today. Oh no, that's great, and and you know that sort of battle damage can remind you of things. I know my copy of the Celestial Toy Maker, for example, uh, a couple of the pages fell out of it. I mean, normally the glue in these Target books is amazing, and even now, forty years on, they're holding together just great. But even as a new copy, my Celestial Toy Maker lost a couple of pages, and I glued them back in. And it's not quite perfect, but whenever I pick up that Target novel, I think, oh, I did that when I was about twelve or thirteen. Huh? Isn't that neat? <laughs> and it sort of reminds me of that time. So I know exactly what you mean. How just a, a generic book can can have some sort of damage or, or something that you've done to it that does remind you of a, a time i guess maybe filling in the crosswords in the annuals or something might do the same for people yeah exactly and that's you know that's where you know i'm i'm showing my age and my and my you know my uh, my connection with nostalgia you know there's you can download all the episodes or all the shows that you want on in digital format but to actually hold a copy of something whether it be a vhs whether it be a target novelization whether it even be you know a DVD, which is now seen as obsolete, almost as obsolete as, you know, 
LPs are more relevant than DVDs today, which I find hilarious. Yeah, that is bizarre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's, everyone's buying vinyls nowadays. No one's looking upon DVDs with that same type of uh, um, yeah, respect and, 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 uh, and, and, and cherishness. But, um, but, yeah, so holding on to it, you can actually feel the pages. You can feel the memories. You know, it's that tactile uh, connection to the past, which is you know, very special. And great thing about Doctor Who is there's so many, like, annuals and target novelizations that have character to it and, you know, beautiful work of the time as opposed to just having action figures like Star Wars and stuff like that, which, you know, people are selling for exorbitant amounts of money and even the target novelizations are going quite high as well. But to to hold on to them and keep your copies and it's very much of that time, of that era is, uh, yeah, it's something about Doctor Who. It's, it's nostalgic but also constantly moving forward, which is uh, why it's lasted for over 50 years. That's right. And, I mean, we were mentioning annuals a couple of times just then, and I opened some of my annuals, which were bought secondhand because I wasn't alive when some of these came out. And, you mm. know, it'll say to uh, to Johnny, Christmas 1974 or something, and I think, oh, wow, you know, who was Johnny? Where was he? What did he think? Did he read this on Christmas Day, you know? And even though it's not my history, it's someone else's history, and I, I'm interested in that. Definitely, definitely. It's uh, yeah, that type of stuff is uh, you know, who is always is yeah you know, is inexorably connected to the past, and no matter how much it tries to be modern, and that's what it tries to do with the latest trends. You know, the seventies era was all about Bond and the Avengers. The eighties was all about that. You know, that resurgence of gothic horror, but then uh, you know, Chris Mays, Bidge Mead, and and John Nathan Turner tried to kick it into the more science, serious science fiction that was moving into the 80s. And they tried to keep up with the action violence of the, of the mid-80s with the A-team, with, Pat, uh, with um, Colin Baker's era. So they've always trying to be as modern as possible. Sometimes they succeed, sometimes they don't. And, you know, the relevance of the show now, you know, even you know, coming into its 10th season, even though it's been, you know, being back over 12 years, it's trying to keep up with, you know, modern you know, with Bluetooth and, you know, digital files and the all this all these modern issues, Doctor Who can always stay relevant but always has that that uh that foot firmly planted back in, in the past. Indeed. Now earlier we were talking about reading the book versus watching it as a as a show and there is one particular part of the, the televised story that I adore and you'll probably know what bit I'm talking about straight away. It's where Pertwee says to the guys, you know, when you go back home, don't don't glorify war, don't make it seem like a big adventure. I'm wondering if that comes across as well in text as it, as it does on the screen, because on the screen, that no matter what I think of other parts of the story on screen, that part always just grabs me, and I think, oh, my God, that, that is Doctor Who in a nutshell. That That is just amazing, you know. Um, does that scene move you? Uh, do you recall seeing it for the first time? Oh, yeah, it's it's... Well, that story in particular as well has one of my favourite... Uh, Doctor Who quotes of all time. Uh, for a long time, it was you know a straight line, maybe the shortest distance between two points, but it is by no means the most interesting from uh, the Time Warrior. But I think it's that's been trumped quite recently over the last couple of years, and I've actually used this quote in my re- most recent show, which is uh, The Heart Awakens, which is about my it was sort of like part three of my nerd trilogy of shows. My first ever solo show was about Sherlock Holmes. My second ever solo show was about Doctor Who, which was Who Me, which I've gained most of my notoriety for. Uh, and my third show, which I took years to do, which is finishes off the trilogy, which was about my first love, Star Wars. And I did that in sort of like as a love story where I 
have you know, doc, you know Star Wars was my first love, but then you know we separated and I found a new love which was Doctor Who, and then you know Doctor Who wasn't doing much and not moving and not sort of like changing or evolving, so we broke up and I started a new relationship with Star Wars. We'd come back with the prequels. And then, you know, we lost our way again and I returned to my love of uh, Doctor Who. And there was a key moment where there's a scene where I'm acting out a scene and caught up in my frustration with the new prequels and how they didn't really capture the essence of the heart of the original Star Wars. And I quote John Pertwee's third Doctor from the planet of the Daleks, which is, you know, courage isn't a matter of not being afraid, you know. It's about being afraid but doing what you have to anyway. And that's an amazing scene. And that's, you know, I know the history of that from Doctor Who annals from listening to Terence Dix and Barry Letts because at this time he was in his fourth year. And as Terence Dix says in his matter-of-fact manner, you know, John just wanted a bit more of the acting stuff. He didn't just want to do the, the, the action and the fighting. He wanted to get a bit more of the, you know, acting in. He wanted to show off his talent. So we had to write these monologues. And so... <laughs> Yeah, these beautiful moments where you actually see, you know, John Pertwee, who's not the most diverse of actors. He had a very limited range as a performer, and that's why I adore him. He worked within an inch of his life within his acting. Like uh, Sylvester McCoy, you see him within his three years of uh, Doctor Who. He's very limited with what he can do, but he pushes himself. Sometimes it goes a bit ridiculous, like in uh, his uh, confrontation scene with Light in Ghost Light. And even John Pertwee has his mugging scenes when he's being attacked by monsters, but he, and he has his limited range. You can go, okay, this is where he's going to be touching his nose finger. He's going to be stro- he's going to be stroking his chin finger. He has his limited poses and stuff, but you could see he's working as best he can to push himself with it as a dramatic actor. And that's what he wanted to do with the Doctor is make it a dramatic role. He didn't want to do it as a as a co- comedic character. He wanted to play it straight. And so as he got along into the show, he became more confident about how he wanted to do the character. So he has some beautiful moments in there, you know, encouraging. The, the science uh, thal that, you know, you know just because you're afraid when you're doing stuff doesn't make you a coward, that's a beautiful moment in the corridor, in the in the cell. And then, yeah, that final speech is very beautiful and still very relevant now, very much so nowadays. Uh, you, know, you know, think of all the loss and, you know, no, don't think of war as a, as, a, as a fun thing. He does it really – yeah, and that type of stuff you can't really capture – in in a in text form, it really depends on the performer. And so, anytime John Pertwee, you know, you know, stretches his acting muscles, I get very happy. Like the scene in the Time Monster, there's only one good scene in that entire six part abomination. The Time Monster <laughs> is when he's tied up with <laughs> tied up with Joe in Atlantis, and he talks about you know the old man who lived up you know halfway up a mountain by the you know behind his house, yeah. which we see come. And, and so that moment talking about, you know, it's all grey and dark, but then he starts to see the colours again. Those type of beautiful little moments give us a great insight into not only John Pertwee's Doctor, but they kind of carry that on. And you see that type of uh, beauty and, and uh, that admiration for his for, for the world and for life and for the universe and for even his home planet in, you know, uh, David Tennant's speech with, um, with Martha in gridlock when he starts to talk about Gallifrey. You see, that's a direct connection. You can see that as a character. You can see that 10th Doctor is the exact same character as the 3rd Doctor, even though it's, you know, 40 years difference and two completely different actors. So, yeah, the, those performance elements that, that Pertwee threw so much into his Doctor is something you can't really capture. You can try to emulate it by reading it in your imagination, but there's something about 
you know, an actor being given some words and uh, making them sing. And he hit the mark really well with those type of speeches because he wanted it. You can see he wanted to do it so much. He wanted to be taken seriously. He took the material, he took the show so seriously that we had no other option but to go with him. And that's uh, a credit to him as his performance. And he gets a lot of derision and he's kind of been forgotten over the last couple of years because, you know, Tom Baker is such a huge influence and with the modern Matt Smith and David Tennant have taken a lion's share of it, but Peter Capaldi's done a very good job of, you know, connecting things to the Pertwee era, like some of the fo- early photo shoots, uh, reminiscent of photo shoots with um, Pertwee and, and Manning, and you know, the velvet jacket obviously coming back is a huge tribute to, to to the Pertwee era. So yeah, it's good to see that you know the Pert is getting a bit more attention again. Which uh, begs the question as we round up here: Is he is he still at the top of the the food chain for doctors in terms of you know what what you like, or is he uh, slipped a bit? Or no, he's he, he's he's a beautiful man, and he's he stayed strong. You know, he was a comedian trying to be serious, and for me, you know, uh, a, a you know a young actor who started out work in pantomimes back in Dubbo when I was a kid and then moving into university trying to be a legitimate actor, but now moving back into comedy, I'm always I always connect so strongly with Pertwee because he was a comedian trying to be a serious actor. And I still see myself as, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, a funny young kid, little kid trying to be, uh, trying to be taken seriously. So I've got deep connections with that. And there's been a lot of impressive doctors. I've, you know, found a deep love for Patrick Troughton's doctor, who I think is the greatest actor ever to play the doctor. Mm. Um, Eccleston did a wonderful job. Um, you know, one of my favorite actors of all time, John John Hurt, even played the you know uh, the War Doctor for, for for just one fleeting moment, and so that was a, a particularly you know fun moment for me to have idolized John Hurt for all this time as one of the great actors of the last forty years to actually jump into my favorite character role, um, and, and you know Capaldi is is you know is up there with some of the you know some of the greats. He's up there with Patrick Travers, one of the greatest actors to play the role. And he's still finding his way a bit, but John Pertwee for me is yeah, is at the top. And there's been a lot of changing underneath underneath him, but he's yeah, well and truly stayed at the top ever since 1996. And I don't think anything will uh, make him move because again, it's that you know connection I have with nostalgia. I'm very hard, very hard for me to give up that nostalgia, Rob. <laughs> Well, this just leaves one thing to do. It's always, I think, the vulgar part of the show, and that's to talk value. Obviously, the Target books were produced in such volume that you can still go out and buy buy them from the 70s and 80s, uh, particularly if they're a little beat up for 5 to 10 bucks, which I think is is a bargain for any fan getting into Who Now, that you can go go out and just grab all this stuff so easily. Still, it's uh, it's a wonderful thing. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I mean, that's where I've got so many of mine, uh, you know, from the three I got originally mysteriously found on my shelf, all the others I've just gone to secondhand bookshop. I've still got many to get through, and it's always the case. And I've even picked up the, the special re-releases with introductions by, you know, Neil Gaiman or Mark Gatiss or um, Russell T. But, yeah, there's a whole pile I got from um, uh, my old school library. I work as a teacher, and my old school library was just throwing out everything in the library and they said, look, we found these Doctor Who novels. If we find any, do you just want a massive pile of them and we'll give them to you? And I went, yes. Yes, please. <laughs> yes, please. So I got about, yeah, 15 ones I hadn't had. In the, and it was a beautiful covered in uh, contact. Contact yeah. isn't used anymore. Why isn't contact used now? 
And so, you know, uh, we haven't got, you know, um, dustproof paper like in Back to the Future 2. No. Um, so I've got a massive pile from just that. That's the great thing about the target novelizations. It really is you can just go out and find them in, you know, in the rarest of places, in the hard-to-get hard places, secondhand novels. You feel like Indiana Jones of nerds looking for the rare copy of The Ark in Space of The Covenant or something like that. That's right. And if you haven't tried that, listeners, do get out there and give it a go. You'll find some wonderful stuff. There are there are a few Target novels that are quite expensive from very late in the run uh, that were limited in number. But on the whole, you'll have a lot of fun in secondhand bookshops finding them fairly cheaply. Definitely, definitely, yeah. I think it's a rite of passage for any Doctor Who fan, who um, especially nowadays with modern fans that you know there are some who just stick straight to the to the modern series but there's those brave adventurous ones who go let's let's adventure back let's go back and so they have to go through what we all had to go through they find out with shock and horror that there's you know only you know there's over 100 episodes of patrick trout missing they have to go through that we had to go through it they'll have to go through it as well they have to through the rite of passage of going to those secondhand novels and go oh look oh it's the doomsday weapon but hang on on tv it was called you know it's called colony in space what's going on here so all that type of fun they need they need to discover that again i think so i think so it's it's just great it's just great and what else has been great is you joining us today rob this has been a really entertaining chat oh (laughs) thank you so much for giving me the space the platform to indulge once again in my uh, nerdy obsession it's been a pleasure talking to you rob absolutely compliments of the season and people do check out nerd out uh as we talked about at the start of the show it's uh, a really great podcast well, thank you very much. Thank you very much for your, your, your praise is, 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 is humbling to this, uh, to this damn old fool. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. Take care.